Good morning. Grab a seat. Grab a seat. Hey, we're going to continue our uh, study in Nehemiah. So if you have a a Bible, flip to the uh, book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to read verses 11 uh, through part of chapter 2. And as you're flipping there, I'm excited about being back in college. My name is Kevin Barra, in case you didn't know, new, new person back. I'm going to be taking over for Trey Corey. He's moving to campus pastor here at uh, the Southwood campus. That means he's going to oversee all of the ministries, and I'm moving in uh, to college ministry. So I'm so thankful to be here. And I've met some of you guys. You've come up and said, hey to me. I'll just say this. I would love to meet as many of you as possible. So please introduce yourself to me. I'll be happy to chat and whatever. My wife's back there with my little baby right over there. So my wife right there, that's Hillary. So feel free to Say hey to a baby whenever you want to. And my wife back over there. So, Nehemiah chapter 1, starting verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Now in the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year, of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to open up your word. And Lord, as we study the life of a man who who changed a community by the power of, of your grace, Lord, I pray that we might to look at how we might be community-changing people, that we also might be a community that changes the culture in which we live. And Lord, I lift up these students to you. I lift up this time that we have together, that you would open up our hearts and minds to what you would want to say to us this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Watch this. All right. So, assessing the situation, Mm -hmm. are they breathing? No, Rose, they are not breathing. And they have no arms or legs. No, that's not part of it. Where are they? You know what? If we come across somebody with no arms or legs, do we bother resuscitating them? I mean, what kind of quality of life do we have there? I would want to live with no legs. How about no arms? No arms or legs is basically how you exist right now, Kevin. You don't do anything. All right, well, let's get back to it, because you're losing them. Okay, too fast. Everyone, we need to pump at a pace of 100 beats per minute. Oh, okay. That's uh, hard to keep track. How many is that per hour? How's that going to help you? I will divide and then count to it. Right. Okay, well, a good trick is to pump to the tune of Staying Alive by the Bee Gees. Do you know that song? Yes, yes, I do. I love that song. First I was afraid, I was petrified. No, it's... Uh, 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 staying alive, okay. yes, staying yes, yes. alive. You were in the parking lot earlier. That's how I know you. Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, staying alive, staying alive. Ah, 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 staying alive, staying alive. Uh, you can't uh, tell uh, by the way I use my walk. I'm a woman's man, no time to talk. 
Where's it loud? Women more been kicked around since I was born. Well, it's all right. It's okay. You can look the other way. Let it go. Let it go. Stay alive. Yeah. Okay. You didn't maintain 100 beats per minute, and the ambulance didn't arrive because nobody called 911. So you lost them. Okay. <laughs> oh, too much, too much. Now the question you're all asking is this: What possible point could you make from that moment? And it's this: When you're distracted from the plan you run into a mistake. And it was really the last statement that's the key point in it. She says, you're just messing around and no one called the ambulance and so the armless person is dead, right? So that's kind of her statement at the end of it. Because you didn't plan, we suffer the consequences. And we've all felt that in life, right? There's moments when because we didn't plan well, we suffered from those mistakes. And so it could have been a school project, right? The project's coming up, and you're like, oh, I totally, totally have enough time to work on it this coming weekend. But you didn't realize it was parents' weekend, and so parents were coming in, and you were busy, and, and, and suddenly everything else kind of took over your schedule, and you couldn't do it. Or, or this is my personal nightmare. Um, I would literally wake up in sweats all through college with this fear that there was a test the next day that I had completely forgot about in a class I didn't sign up for, or I didn't know I'd signed up for. Anyone have that fear? Just me, okay? Come to the end of the semester, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. But that, but that was like a, a fear, like, oh my gosh. And every now and then, not really in college so much, but in high school, there was those moments when you'd walk into class and you'd look to your buddy and you'd be like, hey, did you prepare for the test? And then you would just see the blood drain from their face. They're like, test here? Today? Now, yeah, I, when we don't prepare, we've all seen the moments when we suffer the consequences, And the truth is this, God is asking us to be a people that join with him in what he is doing in the world. To be people that that live our lives in a heart that's united with his life. And part of what that means is we pray and plan well with our lives. Planning and prayer go in alignment with the heart of God that he has in the world. And we're studying the book of Nehemiah. And in the book of Nehemiah, we see a man that his heart was fit with God's heart. And he followed God's plan and brought God's people together. And really what we see Nehemiah do is that he saw a broken city. The city of Jerusalem lies in ruins. And in rebuilding a wall around this city, he also has the ability to rebuild people's lives. He really is someone that is a person who changes the culture of the people he's living with. And the truth is this, God has asked us to be people that change culture by the lives we live. You are called, Christians are called to be a community changing culture. And as soon as I say that, I think many of us would push back for a second and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. minute. I'm supposed to change the culture in which I live? Kevin, I'm just trying to survive college, right? I'm just trying to survive my roommates. I'm just trying to figure out my way here. What do you mean I need to be a culture changing person? Well, I would simply tell you this. God is calling you to follow him and to follow him in whatever place he puts you. And there are three fears that Nehemiah walks through in his moment as he's following God's call on his life in this moment. I'll tell you what, these are the same three fears that hit every single one of us. And as we watch Nehemiah walk through these fears, I'll tell you what, God can walk you through your fears. And at the end, I want to call us to something. 
I want to call us to actually do something in the few weeks we have of this semester to, to really partner with God. And maybe we can make a, good, a great impact in the few days we have left in this season of college. And so the first fear that Nehemiah hits is this, a fear of his current position. A fear of his current position. And the, the, he says this in verse 11. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of, the, of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Well, who is this man that he's talking about? Well, it says, I was cupbearer to the king. And in the month of Nisan, he, he went in front of Artaxerxes. And it says he's not been sad in his presence. The first fear that he faced was a fear of his position. Now, he was a cupbearer to the king. Now, what did that mean? His role was to sit by the king during parties. And his responsibility was when a cup of wine would come to the king during this party, he would take a sip of it, and if he didn't die, he would pass the cup onto the king, and the king could enjoy the wine in the mix. So it's, it's kind of a rough job. Success in this job means either you live another day to drink another cup, or you die, and then it's job well done, right? So it's a position in which you are close to the king, but it's a position that's very disposable. In fact, there was many cupbearers that would be part of the king's service. And what he saw is that he didn't have authority. I mean, he'd heard that Jerusalem, the walls had been broken down, and they were destroyed by fire, and he had a position in which he didn't really have the authority to do anything other than take a sip and pass a cup. And I think when I, when I say the idea that let's be a community that shapes culture, let's be people that, that shape the culture in which we live, I think the immediate excuse that many, many of us have is, is I don't have the position to implement that kind of change. Like I, I'm not capable of doing great things because of my limited position. There's a book by uh, John Maxwell and it's called Developing the Leader Within You. And he talks about positional leadership. And in the book, the lowest level, the lowest rung on the ladder of leadership, he calls positional leadership. And he says this of positional leadership. This is the basic entry level of leadership. The only influence you have is that which comes with a title. Real leadership is being the person others will gladly and confidently follow. You see, his position, any position is an opportunity. It's not a liability. Any position you have may be limited in authority, but what Nehemiah saw is that I may have a limited authority, but I actually have access to the king. You see, the position that God has put you in, in this moment, in this time, is a divine appointment. It's not an accident. See, God has put you in the place you are here in College Station, Texas, at Texas A&M University or Blinn, wherever you're at, strategically for this purpose to make an impact. And as soon as I say that, you're like, okay, Kim, but I'm limited. I'm just a college student. I mean, what do I have? I'm, I've got limited resources. But I'll tell you this, with limited resources, you also have limited responsibilities. How many of you college students are paying a mortgage? Mm, that's good. How many of you college students um, have uh, dependents that you're paying for, like kids? No, no kids. That's awesome. Okay. How many of you college students uh, 
actually have to pay for all of your education. Like, it's totally on you to pay for. Yeah, a couple of you, yeah. So you actually have jobs, so that's, that's cool. But for most of you in this room, actually, you're not even uh, having to pay for all of your own education. You may have limited resources, but I'll tell you what. You have freedom that people with those obligations don't have. The second thing you have is this. You might, excuse might be that I'm inexperienced, but I'll tell you this. You may be inexperienced, but you're energetic. I can't tell you how many college student conversations I've listened to over the years in which they have said something along these lines. Hey, what are you doing this weekend? I don't know. You want to drive to Wisconsin? (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. Let's leave Thursday when classes end, and we'll get back Sunday or Monday morning before my next class, right? There's this boundless energy that some of you have. Some of your parents in the room are going, like, did you do that? Not not calling anyone out. I'm just saying, like, you have boundless energy. It's unreal how much energy you have. I was talking to a student the other day, and they said, yeah, our meetings don't start till after 10 p.m. And I'm like, really? After 10 p.m.? That's incredible. And, and, and they're saying, like, no, what time do you wake up? I don't know, 7 or 8? I'm like, oh, my God. I just I can't imagine. Go, you have boundless energy. And the third thing is this. You, you may not know your future. You have an open future. But I'll tell you what. You are open to tremendous opportunities. You have limited responsibilities. You have boundless energy. And you are open to limitless opportunities. I want to just show you a couple opportunities right in front of you. Right now, there's about 13,000 students at the Blinn campus. There's about 58,000 at A&M campus, at the College Station campus. 58,000 people. Okay, I'm excited about it. There's a ton of people right here at your fingertips. They keep on building more and more apartment buildings to, to house all of these people that are flooding here. And I was having a conversation, uh, several of us were, with a local psychologist. You know what he said? He, he, we give a lot of um, people that come in want counseling. We, we send a lot of people that way, but he also mentors and, and, uh, and counsels a lot of college students. You know what he said? He said 80% of his clients simply needed meaningful, God-focused community. And then they would no longer need to see him. Basically, he was saying, I would be out of a job if we could surround each one of my clients with meaningful, God-centered community. And a most recent poll um, found here locally that about 2,000 of the students or 2.8% of the student body at A&M is actually engaged in a small group community. So about 2.8, almost 3% of the local student body here at A&M, 2,000 students, is engaged in a small group community. And this is what, I've been a youth pastor for a number of years, this is what I tell high school students all the time. It's awkward, but it makes the point. I can't go into your locker rooms. That would be awkward but you're there. You're there. I can't go to every one of your dorms, but you're there. I can't go to every one of your apartment complexes. too many people, but you're there. I can't be in every one of your student organizations, but you're there. I can't be involved in everything that you're involved in, but God has strategically put you in that place so that you might make a great impact in that place. God has positioned you to be there to impact it for his purposes. So where's God put you? What organizations are you involved in? What apartment complex are you living in? What dorm are you? Are you in ultimate or whatever thing that you're doing? What are you doing? 
It's not merely an accident. It's God's divine appointment. But the second fear that comes up is this, and it's the fear of man. The fear of man. So next, Nehemiah goes in front of the king, and in verse 2, we see his fear pop up. The king says to him, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Why was he afraid to be sad in front of the king? Well, in that day, to be uh, the cupbearer, there was a very specific way to approach the king. In fact, there's, there's artistry from that era that shows how they approach. Oftentimes, they would cover their mouth, and they would have like this weird like, hand motion that they would do uh, in front of the king's presence because they didn't want to breathe on the king, and they wanted to show this deference. And also, Persian writers write this, that everyone should be overjoyed to be in the presence of the king because... He's awesome for some reason, right? So there should only be deference and excitement whenever you're in front of the king, and he is showing sadness. He's showing his broken heart in front of the king in this moment. And as soon as the king notices it, he's afraid. How is this king going to respond to me? And I'll tell you what, the the next biggest fear that we have is the fear of how people are going to respond to us. I mean, as soon as I say, like, you can go to your community and and engage them, there's a fear we have about engaging those people. I mean, how are they going to respond to me? And I tell you what, the only way to overcome the fear of man is to look beyond this man into what you should really be afraid of, what you should really fear. Um, I I love this story, and a friend of mine shared it a number of years ago, and I, I think it just communicates it. He and his buddies, when they were like in fourth and fifth grade, they would play kickball in their own, uh, in their little cold sack. And there was one moment when they're kind of playing kickball, there was a bully on the side of uh, living in one of the houses around the cold sack, and they're kicking it, and they kick the ball into, his, into this bully's yard. And so that guy takes their kickball from like these, you know, little elementary kids, takes the kickball, puts it in his car, and closes his door. And all these boys are like, Oh, kickball, what are we going to do? You know, and they're like freaking out. What, what are we going to do with this big guy, right? And then suddenly one of the kids' dads saw the guy do it. So he's driving home. He pulls in. He sees the whole thing play out. And then the question is, what is Johnny's dad going to do about this? He gets out of the car and walks over to this guy. And they couldn't hear exactly what he said because he kind of talked in a low tone. It was kind of like, you give those boys that ball back, right? And suddenly you see this bully like crumble. Like, I'm sorry, sir. I'm so sorry I took the ball from the boys. Like, here, take it back. Here, have fun, kids. Have fun, you know? It just, and then immediately from then on, everyone is, is enthralled and excited about this kid's dad. And so every now and then as boys get together, they go, okay, whose dad would beat up who? And they're like, okay, Johnny's dad w- would win. But I nominate my dad for second, Right? See, there was something beautiful in that moment when you saw someone with strength and who cared. And when you see strength with caring, you know you can trust that person to be with you. In fact, Jesus said the exact same thing in Luke chapter 12. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. Say that again. Don't fear those people who can only kill your body, but after that, they have nothing else they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who has, 
after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I, I tell you, fear him. And then he says this, fear the person with the biggest power. And then he says this, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, you are more valuable than many sparrows. See what he's saying? Have the right fear. There is no man who can, who can oppress you in such a way that your heavenly father doesn't know and care for you. So don't be afraid to ask. And so what does Nehemiah do in this moment to overcome his fear of this man who had the authority to literally take his life? He prayed. And it was one of those short, like 10-second prayers. Okay, God, <laughs> help me in this moment. And then he moves to his third fear. All right, what if this doesn't work? I mean, it sounds cool, but what if this whole thing falls through? I think we all have that fear. Kevin, are, you're asking me to, to use my position, to leverage my position, and to move in front of people. But what happens if it doesn't work? I think we all fear f- something. In fact, the Washington Post recently did a, uh, a, a look of different fears that people have. It was interesting. It, this, I see this all the time. That Number one fear is this, the fear of public speaking. They have many other ones, fear of heights, bugs, snakes, other animals, drowning, blood needles, claustrophobia, flying, strangers, zombies, darkness, clowns, and ghosts, Right? So there's all sorts of things to be afraid. Interestingly, Democrats are more likely to be afraid of clowns than Republicans. I thought that was an interesting tidbit. <laughs> but everyone fears something. And I, I find it interesting that every, every now and then, as you kind of poll different people, public speaking is like that number one fear. And I think the reason is this, because it's kind of like the spotlight is just on you. And the question is, are you going to be boring? Are you going to be interesting? Are you going to say something stupid or embarrass all of us? Like, what, is, what are you going to do? And I'll tell you what, in my life, I've always had roles that at a, at a moment would have a public spotlight to it. In fact, in college, I ran track. Um, this is one picture of me in an event that I ran called the Steeplechase. And it's a long-distance race over hurdles and a water pit. I'm actually one of those people in there, but okay. So, so it's a long-distance race over hurdles and a water pit. And this is what it should look like when you run this race, right? You should hit the barrier and then kind of jump off, have one foot in the water, and keep on running. That's what the race should look like. It's a two-mile race over hurdles and a water pit. But every now and then, something like this will happen. Oops. So this guy tripped on the barrier, and he's kind of careening toward his demise. And it actually gets worse in the next photo. I love they got both action shots. Ow, faceplant. Literal faceplant. Now, I had never had something this bad happen to me. I'm so thankful for that, right? That's a failure that I never had to encounter. But I'll tell you what, the first time I ever ran the steeplechase in college, um, I'm in a, at, a, at a huge race at, at Texas Relays, which actually just happened this other week. And it's a, one of the biggest races in Texas. Colleges from all over the, the nation are coming to it. And as, as the gun blows, everyone starts running, and there's about 20 people in the race, and they pack in tight, and there's no lanes in this race. So everyone's just kind of over, man for yourself, kind of hopping these barriers, which are hard to see when you've got a crowd of people in front of you. And we come to the first water barrier, and I'm running behind some guys, and I go to jump up to put my foot on the barrier, 
And instead of feeling something firm to jump off of, my foot goes right through and I fall down into the deep part of the water pit. As I'm sitting there, it feels like forever. If you've ever been in those big failure moments, it feels like forever. And then I'm running through, what do I do in this moment? I can fake an injury. (laughs) I can fall over. Oh, the water, alligators, run the water. You know, I could do any number of things to kind of avoid continuing to go. And as I sat there, I just remember my coach's words popping into my mind. He said, you're going to fall. Everyone does. What are you going to do about it? You're going to get up and keep going, or are you just going to fall? And that moment, I just got up, and I kept going. Finished okay, but it was a terrifying moment to be two feet in deep water and feel like you just face-planted. And I tell you what, when we talk about being a community that changes culture, I I think there is a a fear of position. There is a fear of people. But I tell you what, the third one that I think most of us face is, what happens if this doesn't work? Leo Tolstoy says says this, let fear once get possession of the soul and it doesn't readily yield its place to another sentiment. If you let that fear sit and own you, you won't move forward. So what did Nehemiah do? He planned. And as he planned, he spoke his plan in a terrifying moment. You see, when Nehemiah first heard the words that that the gates were burned, it was in the month of Chislev. That's November, December. When he goes in front of the king, it's the month of Nisan. It's been a four-month period of time where he's been praying and planning. And when he finally had his moment, he moves through his fear of failure, and he says this in verse 5, So I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the land of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me where I had, when I'd given him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may let me pass until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates and the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of God was on me. It's so interesting. He has a detailed plan laid out before he even stepped into in front of his spot. Four key things. He says, I want to go and be governor of Judah. I want you to let me be there for this amount of time. I then want you to give me letters for all these, to all these governors to allow me to pass through. And I want you to fit the bill to rebuild the wall. I want you to give me timber and all the resources to play this out. I mean, this is a bold request. I want you to send me. I'll be gone for an indefinite amount of time, probably, probably about a year, several months to a year, and I want, I'm going to be there for that long, and I want you to fit the bill for this project. And what did the king say? Okay. You have a plan. I'll let you execute your plan. Isn't that amazing? He planned out and he, was, he had something that he was asking people to do. 
He had thought it through. Then he asked, and they joined in. So what, Kevin, does this have to do with us? I want us to try to be people that are a community that changes culture. Nehemiah in his day was rebuilding a wall to, to bring people together so that they might know the God of the universe. You know what God is calling you to be? A city on a hill that shines the light of the gospel wherever you are. See, Jesus says it this way, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You don't hide it under a bushel, no, right? Nor do people let a light, light a lamp and hide it under a basket. They put it on a stand and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and give glory to God your, and to your Father who's in heaven. He says, I want you to live in culture and represent me in that place. I want you to be a light city that everyone sees what it looks like when the community of Christ goes into their midst. And then, he's, then Peter says it this way. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built together up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You know what you are? You're stone. You know what I am? I'm just a stone. And God in his providence has put all of us here. You know what he's doing in this place? He's fitting you together. He's rubbing off some of your edges. He's putting some mortar between and he's stacking you together. And what's, what's the point? Like what's the goal? That you would be people that come together, invite people in, and that you would offer spiritual sacrifices to God, that you would offer th- lives that bring honor and glory to God as you are stacked together. That you'd be communities that reach out and invite in. So what's the big call, Kevin? What are we going towards? Well, I'm going to give you a couple things to think about and a couple of uh, super ridiculous examples of success in this. First one is this. I, what's, what's your role? It's this. The final week of April, that you would bring people together to build the purpose of building community. That you would bring people together for the purpose of building community. So I want you to think for a moment about your position. Where, where's God put you in his providence? Who are the people that are right around you that, that God has you connected with, your relationships? And how might you bring people together so that they might see Christ in you? Is it an apartment complex? Is it your sporting event? Is it your flick or flow or whatever it is? Like, who has God put you around? And next week, we're going to have some options. Several of our fellows are going to get together and actually put on some events to reach people, whether it's apartment complexes, some on campus, just for the sake of, of showing people what it looks like to be the community of Christ in their midst. But some of those won't work for all of you. Some of you, God has put you in a specific place, and all semester you've been begging God to give you an opportunity to reach out and impact them. This might be your opportunity. So what I want you to do, I just want you to pray that God would guide your plans for some small outreach to them. Is it a barbecue? Is it y'all are going to get together and play ultimate? Y'all are going to bowl somewhere? I don't know. But some opportunity 
where you can reach out to build community with some people with the love of Christ. I just want to give you three success stories that I've seen. One is in my own life. Um, I'm, I was in college and graduating, and as I was graduating college, um, a guy who was mentoring me for a number of years challenged me with this. He says, I want you to reach out to the track team with the gospel. And I was like, oh, you don't know these dudes. In fact, I heard someone have a quote yesterday. A coach said it. They, they asked this coach, hey, do you like coaching good kids? And he goes, no, I like coaching athletes. And, uh, which, saying, good kids aren't necessarily good athletes. And, um, and my guys, hey, there's a lot of good athletes, but not a lot of people that love Jesus. And he challenged me, I want you to reach out to them. And I did. For one year, I raised support, did ministry, reaching out to this track team. And I'll tell you what, it was the hardest year and most fulfilling. As I got to see these guys that no one had ever invited them to anything start coming to church with me. It was absolutely amazing. Second one is this, and it's actually from one of our fellows that's currently a fellow here at Grace. Um, He was in the Corps of Cadets, and his outfit that he went into as a freshman was known as the worst outfit in the Corps. They were the most ridiculous outfit in the Corps. He said he and his buddies got together and they started praying. They said, all right, over the next four years, how can we shape this? He told me like two weeks ago, he said, he said this, that group, that outfit, is now one of the most Christian outfits in the entire Corps and it was completely not that way just four years ago because we decided to make an impact. And the biggest one I've, I've ever heard of is this. There was a, this is many years ago, and there's a couple guys, they're just like sophomores in college, and they just got together to start uh, praying and studying the Bible and kind of worshiping together. And it was just like, just like 12 of them kind of sitting in an apartment praying and, and kind of talking together. And, and then suddenly it just started growing, you know, and more people were coming in as they were inviting friends, and then it started growing and, and growing. You know what they call that group today? Yeah, breakaway. This past year, they had about 13,000 people on the front lawn, all worshiping Jesus, this loud voice, as all these people came together and, to hear the gospel. Will it look like that for you? I, I don't know, and I don't, I don't care. <laughs> I think the bottom line is this. Are, are we people that are knowing Jesus and represent him, representing him in the place he put us? So I really want to challenge us. Pray. How might God be asking you to reach out? I pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. And I thank you that a man like Nehemiah, who was a cupbearer to the king, stepped out and changed his culture. And Lord, I pray that we too might be normal people called by you to step out and affect our communities for the gospel's sake. So Lord, I pray for creative, fun, exciting ideas that come from, from, from these students. And Lord, they would make a great impact this semester. Amen.